Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasam Ajahnvirdama asked me to give a series of talks, kind of extend, extending a theme, so a series of talks that would actually kind of pick up a theme and develop it over the course of two or three days. Um, <laughs> so I hadn't actually prepared for this kind of experience to happen. <laughs> But um, so when I, I gave it some thought and topic that I thought would be that I could um, talk into, which has some depth to it and some extension, is the topic of karma in relationship to training the mind. Something I'll be giving quite a lot of thought to and some consideration to. Mm. Basically, because it's, in my my view, it's something that links the meditative experience, contemplative experience, with the ordinary actions of our body's speech and thought, the inclinations of our minds, our determinations and uh, passions and uh, acts of generosity and so forth. These inclinations, the karma is something that means action and in a gross sense and even in a very subtle sense that's what we're doing all the time mm. something very subtle like placing your attention we might say is an action placing your attention upon something is an action um, deciding to pull your attention away from something is an action mm. just even sort of sitting here and Getting the sense of watching, watching your mind is a kind of an action. And to supervise the mind is a kind of an action. Yeah. So that's, that's we might say that's the the, the the subtlest kinds of actions that we we do, and we do it with some sense of intention. You know, like mm, yeah, we all feel that people who are sitting here feel that you know you want to come and sit here. You're not sitting here waiting for a bus or because it's raining outside. <laughs> so there's an intrinsic sense in which sitting here somehow you're deciding to do something even though you're not moving. You know, you're doing something with your mind or attention and something you obviously have some feeling of faith or interest in. So your 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 inclination is aroused and determined and made decisive and placed. And even those we all recognise sitting here for an hour can be quite have a discomfort in it, both physical discomfort and the psychological discomfort of kind of restlessness and and doubt or feeling sleepy and or things that preoccupying the mind coming up. Still, one has that something keeps saying, "Well, no, no, just put that aside, just sit, sit, stay here, be with this." And all the time, something in your mind, I expect, 
is supervising and occasionally getting involved with the thoughts that are going on and, and getting meshed with them and then every now and then going, oh, I'll just stop that, pull out of that, get up, come back, you know. There's a subtle action there, isn't there? Yeah. And, and we, 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 you know, we, we, we do this and we feel some commitment to it, call it meditation. Mm-hmm. Why do you feel commitment to it? Why do you do it? You get a sense in which, as you just as soon as you place your attention in this in this way, you get a sense of there's something that supervises all those thoughts and feelings. You know, a lot of the time we're just acting and doing this and doing that and answering the phone and whatever, and then the sense of supervision of the mind is there, but it's kind of minimal. It's it's, it's a kind of basic supervision like. Watch you don't tread on the cat, you know, make sure you don't burn yourself on the stove. It's a kind of background supervision. And in meditation, we are heightening the supervisory quality of the mind and perhaps lessening the activation of the mind. We're not trying to, you know, deliberately figure anything out or produce anything. We just really want to strengthen that supervisory quality of the mind. And we, we feel, oh, that, that feels good somehow. It means there's the possibility for some learning, um, some wisdom, perhaps um, some skills like compassion and a relinquishment and uh, patience. You know, um, some skills with possibility. And even at this quality of the supervising mind itself can have a, a sense of being bigger than we normally sense ourselves as being. And a sense of a continuum, something that's present there. We feel like we we come out of our current story, our current narrative, our current psychological history, you know, drama, and we come to something that seems bigger and stiller and more steady. I want to be there. I want to be more of that. I like to be more there. Feels better. So there are all kinds of inclinations going on that you know you do because you feel them, you sense them, you feel there's a value, and your mind inclines a certain way, it inclines towards something that's stiller, less involved, perhaps seemingly less personalised and yet also very intimate. It's definitely you know, it's yours, isn't it? It's happening for you, and it hasn't got your thumbprints all over it. So there's this ongoing stream, you might say, of mind, with all the flotsam and jetsam of the current events and the current preoccupations that are rising up within it. And the theme of Buddhist meditation, well, a theme, I would say, put it this way, is that we want to actually purify that, that supervision, that supervisory continuum, so it, first of all, it isn't keep, doesn't keep snagging on the thoughts and the moods and the sensations and the runnings out. And it seems, first of all, that if it didn't snag on that, that stuff, then 
there'll be some kind of free spirit, you know. We'd have this sense of a free mind, because it didn't hook on to the sounds and the sights and the sensations. But as you consider it more deeply, you may wonder, okay, the sounds and sights and things like that, how come when I sit here, all these memories of what I did three years ago come up? You know, or a little thing that didn't seem very important yesterday suddenly seems suddenly seems large. Where did that come from? <laughs> you know, and it's in fact it's 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 in this continuum of mind that it's often, uh, if you like, latent or buried there or lying dormant there. And as we start to lessen the current input, the dormant stuff some comes welling up, wakes up. Mm-hmm. Like you clean the desktop of the current affairs and suddenly starts filling up again. Where did that come from? You know? How come? You felt some sense of sadness or agitation and then this more stuff appeared. It came from that continuum. That continuum isn't pure. It's, uh, it's, it's, it seems relatively so until you begin to sweep away some of the current topics and these un- underlying residues come alive. Yeah. So there's, there's some there's storage there. And uh, so it's more than just the inclinations towards current events and current activities, but also this um, underlying tendencies which keep bringing up things. And Buddha says you, you can actually clear both of these, but strange enough, the most important one to clear is not that top level of, of sound, sight, senses. It's the, it's the underlying level of what is it in us that keeps rising up, keeps bringing things up. You know, what is it in us that keeps remembering, you know, keeps feeling miffed or offended by something or keeps feeling we're not quite good enough or we should be something else, keeps feeling slightly tense, keeps feeling a bit, um, you know, uh, restless. So that, this underlying stuff is the really important stuff to clear. The rest of it is just froth. Just froth on the surface. And, but, again, until you've actually swept the froth away, you don't really get down to this underlying stuff because your, your attention is always dealing with the frothy stuff and you, you, you can't see, you can't get into it. So our practice of meditations are often at two levels. One is, is just clearing, sweep, clearing the desktop, clearing away the froth, which we might say is the samatha practice, and there's something that's definitely done with a sense of intentionality, inclination. And there's a deeper practice, which we might call insight, which is about... As, as your mind gets stiller and quieter, then you look into the, this um, welling up, 
this um, basis that was called this upadi or the substrate of clinging where uh, various psychological forces keep happening and you begin to, through insight you begin to touch into those and reveal those and understand those and relinquish those so you've got a twofold process there and the two fit together in a way action and subtle forms of action are the, the keynote to, to the whole process but probably most obviously to do with this very important thing it is kind of clearing away the froth of clearing the desktop this is something we, you know, we can see has itself has has different different um, efforts are required. Obviously, first of all, is the effort to not put too much stuff on there in the first place. <laughs> you know, to not just keep heaping more and more things on. Yeah. Uh, so we call this the effort to restrain. There's the effort to um, relinquish or let go or, or n- not cling to what you have got there so you can actually drop it, put it aside. It's, well, it doesn't matter. And the effort to um, cultivate the clarity and the brightening of attention, steadying your attention, brightening it, yeah. and all the qualities that bring that enhance that, the sense of, of value and uprightness and loving kindness and patience, you know, these that help us to brighten the mind. And the effort also to, to guard it, to realise this is rather a precious thing, this life and this mind and this practice. Don't, don't smirch it, don't throw it away, don't dump it, don't trivialise it. It's a precious thing. Guard it, look after it. The mind needs to be cared for. It's rather like, um, you know, it's like uh, an infant. Just don't let it go wandering off on its own <laughs> without some su- adult supervision. Because <laughs> it can easily just follow sights and sounds, yeah. and those efforts, which sometimes can be quite, as as with uh, a child or or a pet, you know, the efforts can sometimes be quite distinct and clear. Like stop doing that. You know, stop. Be careful there. You know, and you really grab the kid as he's about to stick his fingers in the fire or something. Two things that are much more like um, gentle and inclining and encouraging. Uh, so that the child also gets to learn their own strength. They're not continually just being yanked and pulled and pushed. They get to learn their own get to learn their own wisdom. So all kinds of different levels of of, of how you apply these. Um, but certainly, you know, as as we start to why we apply them, is because already there is some sense of recognizing that the the untrained mind, the mind that we don't put any supervisory effort into, 
doesn't always go very anywhere good. Sometimes it goes to some pretty unpleasant places, and sometimes it just seems to sort of toodle around and around in circles, not going anywhere. You know, just rambling along, getting by, and then you think, well, what, what am I here for? You know, to do toddle along, getting by, going around in circles, chasing my tail, you know, and then gradually aging, sickness, death, and what was all that about? You know, is that it? <laughs> so, you know, for all of us, I, I guess, you know, as we be here, there's some sense of, no, I don't want to just be getting by. I don't just be kind of watching the clouds go by. I'm something valuable here. There's something I need to, you know, I need to do, and something I need to give up, put aside, to abandon. Say no, this isn't worth it. This is a waste of time. So there's an instinct towards these efforts. Something has to be. I have to really, you know sometimes take myself by the scruff of the neck and say, stop doing that, pull out, you know, check it. And sometimes, you know, to really abandon particular habits, sometimes definitely addictive, sometimes just sort of less what we call addictive, but just habitual, habitual meanderings and um, dithering and or worrying and things of this nature, just uh, complaining. and something to be cultivated just like we learn anything else we learn to ride a bike we learn to type we learn to we quite enjoy that we do it because we enjoy it there's something rather valuable and and pleasant to do when we actually stretch ourselves a little bit it's not all just sitting in in the back seat letting things go by there's something in us that you know likes a, a bit of a bit of a stretch, you know, pick up something new, have a go with it. We want to do that. You know, we want to be alive, and to be alive surely means somehow we put something of ourselves into what we're doing, and really made a go for it. And uh, and there's a sense of guarding and um, caring for yourself, supervising. When you've had enough, time to take a rest. When you're going astray, time to look for some support. Mm-hmm. So I think these kinds of efforts are all um, acting on, we call it the intention, or the chetana, the, the volitional quality, the, the do-it quality, whether that's a wish, just bringing up a wish in the mind, or it's a determined resolution or um, a physical action or even refraining from a physical action or inclining the mind this way or that way all this is to do with the quality of volition or intention the Pali word is chetana and the Buddha says in the um, book of the sixes in the Anguttara Nikaya chetana, volition, this is karma this is what I mean by karma, this is karma. And I, I use these quotes just because um, so often people say things the Buddha said and I wonder, where did he say that? I'd like to look at that myself. <laughs> so I, I start to think, it would be nice to tell people where to find these things. So I've got a little 
I've got some notes here, various, so I'll refer to some of these, and then you can look them up yourselves, and give them your own thought and reflection. So, and I, I, you know, I, I kind of talk about this partly because naturally all of us, again I'm presuming, I don't know all of us, but certainly a theme I hear very often, people speak about the need to relax and just rest and be peaceful. And I, yes, of course, and, t- and this is a, a very encouraging theme for practice because most of us a lot of drive and our lives get very busy and active people just get pooped, tired strained and also get into certain psychological addiction to action you know if you're not doing something you're wasting your time so rather um, and, and that that psycho- psychological addiction creates purposes so people have all kinds of purposes like it's really important to fly the biggest kite in the world that's a really important thing to do I've got to do that Um, some guy flew across the English Channel a few years ago to him that was obviously really something that he felt was a big step forward for humanity or (laughs) for himself to find some way in which by his own power he could fly or glide on some vast contraption across the English Channel. Yeah, well, you know. Um, uh, they have a thing in Japan, they have a, a word which means death from overwork. So there's a lot of workaholic, and I think it's good to call it workaholic, to, to really say this is an addiction to, to purpose. All these things have purpose, and people follow them through determination. Just say there is this in us, which gets locked into into a hyper state of overactivity. That because um, something in us needs to be galvanised, yeah. we need to feel we have a purpose. So therefore, we find something to get purposeful about. When we get galvanised by willpower. So as long as you can be willful and purposeful, it doesn't matter what you're being purposeful about, because the very sense of having purpose pulls you together. <laughs> you know? And so then you say, well, just couldn't you just relax? Just come out of that. That would be really useful. And I think, yeah, that's really a good idea. But that relaxation is a kind of inclination of the mind. It's still a cheapener. It still has volition in it. It's saying, check, stop, supervise consider what you're doing, feel what it feels like, let go. Now, to me, that is very much an action, you know, a volitional quality of of skill. And it's also an indication of of the, the sense of loss of being, loss of purpose that contaminates our world that we can feel so adrift 
So, um, unsteady that we get compulsive in order to just have something to feel connected to something to feel purpose about because without that we feel kind of disoriented and maybe depressed or anxious and so that the sense of having something to do really helps it helps to push aside the anxieties or the feelings of inadequacy or this, this restless discomfort of the mind. So yeah, then you can see this is, this is uh, action, all right? But it's not very clear action. What we all have to perhaps acknowledge is whether action is confused, muddled, driven, violent, abusive, beautiful, generous, skillful, contemplative, refined. We're all in it. <laughs> so you better get hold of this thing because there isn't an easy you don't easily slip out of it Um, and of course what we're looking to do in fact is to act it define and refine our our inclinations and our activities to the point where there is a feeling where there is this experience of release or satisfaction or ending of the itch a feeling of deep groundedness, whatever you want to call that, where one will, will, no, will no longer have anything to act upon. There will be a complete rest. This, we might, this perhaps is difficult to define, but, but the uh, one way of talking about nirvana <coughs> is the sense of the complete rest of the mind. Yeah. But it doesn't happen until we have cleared out these underlying fretting, agitating, stirring, hankering uncertainties that lie dormant, sometimes not dormant, but rampant (laughs) in the the mind. (laughs) So this is really the theme. And you can see actually there is a direct connection between what I call the substrate, the deeply embedded stuff, and the surface activities. They, they do relate. The, the, the surface activities are fed by these upwelling springs, you might say, from the, from the underlying anxieties or um, needing to be or um, wanting to have something to hold on to. Um, wanting to belong to something, um, you know, this is kind of very in, unverbal persuasions, they're not, they're, not, they're not thoughts, they're kind of fundamental mood persuasions. Um, these are called um, anutsaya, latent tendencies, so, so that they're, they're, you know, the bottom level you have these what I call anutsa, latent tendencies, and asawa. Asawa are the outflow currents, which means these are the very wellsprings that come, that things flood up through, um, or, or the, the primary wellsprings through which inclinations come welling up. And they're triggered by 
these latent these latent tendencies, which um, the things such as as um, sense hankering or attachment to the senses, seeking something, feeling something, looking for something to get into in the sense realm, something to get a hold of in the sense realm. Mm. Irritation, trying to being irritated and trying to get away from the sense realm, you know, push it away and feeling discomforted and you know this um, tendency to form views about things because right? when we get a certain sense of of being galvanized or stabilized by forming an ideological viewpoint, you see this particularly strongly in fundamentalist viewpoints, it stands out very clearly that some some views which seem, when you're not in them, seem rather absurd or crass or very simplistic, yet have a hypnotic quality. They, they, they give people a great sense of stability and security to say, this is right, that's wrong, we're good, they're bad, that's it. Nice, simple, I know where I am now. You know, So there's a, there's a hankering for that in human beings and around this of course the religious views and um, you know theological beliefs and political views and views based upon nationality or ethnic group or you know who's better, who's worse who's who's superior, who's inferior whose lives are more valuable and whose lives don't really count and so forth and that you want to obviously want to be in the right, you feel your you either are, you want to be in the right category of these. <laughs> so it's forming a view. And so these are qualities that we have to uh, access and, and uh, clear out, abandon. Just to illustrate a little bit the the Buddha's, we look at the example of the Buddha. Buddha's awakening had these three great visions or insights or knowledges or realizations that we call the Vidya, three clarities, the three seeings. One was the recognition. He tapped into something. He tapped into a level of the mind where he realized that this very clear assurance that this stream of mind that he tapped into had been going on for lifetimes actually it hadn't been going on for lifetimes but lifetimes had gone on through it (laughs) and he had this very clear assurance this was the case that's how he experienced it Hmm? rather like uh, I've used the analogy he was his current physical psychophysical being was, you might say, one wave in a, in a big ocean that belonged to the ocean, yet when it, that wave collapsed or finished, then the ocean was still, and another wave would come up. The second wave was not separate, was not the same as the first wave, but somehow came from the same continuum. So it wasn't one wave became another wave, but, but out of that underlying continuum, one wave arose, and if you like, the propelling quality of that wave was 
subsumed into the continuum and then threw up another wave. So the two waves are not like one wave went from one life to the next, but the force of that underlying force of this continuum threw up wave after wave after wave after wave, and he and he, he saw this, and he saw well, what what he realized the sort of things that that typified what a, what he experienced the person. This is my name. This is my clan. This is the kind of food I ate. This is how I died. Interesting just to see how in that day and age that what a person really felt themselves as being. <laughs> so now we might not have, we might have a name, we might have very much our nationality rather than our clan. We don't really have clans, we have nationalities. You know, I was a Canadian, I was English, you know. Um, and then the particular kind of standard things that one did in that lifetime. And this is the way I've died, passed away. You know, very powerful experience, pain or confusion or loss of consciousness, and that's how it went. Things that stay there. And then he reviewed again, he saw actually there was an ongoing street, there was an ongoing current in that stream. There was an ongoing current. And it didn't just apply to him, it applied to everybody. Yet his mind seemed to get even wider and deeper. It was it's just not a personal one-off thing, but everybody um, was in the same ocean, you might say, and the main current of that ocean, where they've been driven across that ocean, was determined upon the ethical tendencies they'd nourished and sustained in their lives, the dominant ethical tendencies generated the current you know, so some went down the pits some went to the happy happier places, their, their life stream seemed to move upwards to their more fortunate uh, others others seemed to go down to less fortunate and he said this, is be- this was dependent upon the dominant ethical qualities they developed in their lives so he saw there was, there was actually some th- real, might say, wholesome and unwholesome, or bright and dark, were not just value judgments placed upon the person by that society, such as, you know, driving at 80 miles an hour is bad, you will get fined, it's morally wrong. <laughs> you know, killing people is wrong, but killing people in the war is good. <laughs> you know, so. So they're kind of rather confused value judgments, but actually, more than that, really fundamentally based upon the ethical qualities of the intentions of the mind. And these are not just superficial judgments of law and order and dependent upon a culture or a social frame of reference, but really innate in a human being. And this is where karma, this is where, this is particularly the view of karma that there are tendencies in all of us that are distinctly wholesome. And you can, you can sense them, you can know them. You don't have to some, somebody else say that's right or that's wrong. You can know them. And there are tendencies that are unhelpful and harmful, and you can know them. You don't have to have somebody else blame you or accuse you or judge you. You can know them for yourself. And if you know those, you're, you've, made, you've done yourself a big, big favour because um, you've begun to know how you can steer your boat across the ocean. 
it's also clear that all the people don't know this because as he said in his vision there's a lot of people going to bad places and nobody wants to go to a bad place I'm sure nobody wants to make their lives more wretched and miserable so how come we don't know we don't really feel certain inclinations are going to do us harm I don't think anybody thinks how can I do myself create more suffering for myself today so these wholesome inclinations although very powerful and determining are not always apparent to us and that's disturbing isn't it (laughs) so why aren't they apparent to us and this is what we're starting to work on in our in our lives as cultivators not just in meditation I hope but all the time is clearing away the froth, the distractions, the delusions the misinterpretations the biases the things that keep us from really knowing ourselves if you like knowing our own hearts, really knowing in ourselves what's good and what's right and really staying with that no matter what because this is important and really discarding the things that are, that are unwholesome because no matter whether we can get away from it everybody else sees it or everybody else is doing it so it doesn't matter still I know that's going to do me damage I don't do that you know, so as cultivators you know, and he's saying this is, not, this is something that's going on all the time so your daily life is really important you know, and you might say there are dominant trends so you see that we might perform a thousand acts of thought and speech and physical actions you know a day even but the dominant trait whether those their tendency is towards the bright or towards the dark and so really know this in yourself because not everybody does clearly you know, we look around and we see a world besotted with violence and blaming and criticizing and whipping up fear and creating pain for other beings. So, uh, fortunately, it's not the only thing you see, but you do see this. People obviously do not know that how much damage they're doing themselves. Mm-hmm. And the Buddha said, "Okay, you know, for those of you who haven't had this particular vision." of life, previous lives and you know what will happen in the future lives you, if you haven't had that vision you don't believe what I'm saying yeah. then check out for yourself how do you feel right now with that you, know, you don't think about it a future life or not just ask yourself really look into your own heart so how does it feel this particular thought do you want to stand up with that would you like to really bring that one up and, and abide in that the quality of that if you're going to crabby or mistrustful <laughs> you know, I want to drop that one if I... and the thing sticks doesn't it Just get off, get off <laughs> so some of this stuff even though when you see it isn't always that, that immediately you know the really you know, grudgy stuff or the 
the um, resentful stuff or the, the worrying stuff, you know, you get, just get worried and fretful, just to really shuck it off isn't always that easy. So he said, well, just see both that there is this, and whether you believe in future lives or don't, feel it really go into that right now, like put the magnifying lens over that one, um, and you see that, yes, it isn't something you really want to be with and make much of and spend your lifetime in, but also see it's not that always that easy to, to drop it. So cultivation is it. Why is it so easy to drop it? And he saw the third vision, which is the vision of these underlying biases. If you like, these are the, these are the magnets that pull us into, into, um, into these, these karmic flows. And of course, for um, the Buddha, was saying, you know, you don't want to go to a bad place. Definitely. <laughs> if you go to, even if you go to a good place, you come back again. You know, you're still going to get, you know, acne. You're still going to get blame. You're still going to get frustration. You're still going to get traffic jams. You're still going to get idiot politicians. You're still going to get aches and pains. You're still going to get sick. You're still going to. Do you want to do this again? (laughs) Do you want to go through this again? Um, yeah, there'll be some fun and some, but you know, you realise there could, there hopefully, will be some pleasure. Yeah, that's that's a good, but there'll certainly be some pain. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> so, if there was a possibility to not have to do this again, you know, and this again is perhaps something that we have don't immediately have control over. We may think, well, I don't know, it seems not so bad after all. <laughs> okay, you know, but for the Buddha he'd had enough. And maybe most of us get to that point when we've, we just about, just about had enough. <laughs> you know, or maybe a few more times, but really I'm kind of getting a bit enough of this already, you know, done this. Uh, this is somewhere else. <laughs> So, saying, well, cause, so then you really don't want any future birth. So that, that magnet, this magnetic force that, that sucks us towards karma, towards the field of action and ongoing and further activity, so you know, that really is the thing that pulls us into, into action. And the first, in, as a very basic thing, um, and this make, makes it so difficult to let go of um, unskillful actions. Because when something in this keeps, either part of it doesn't like it, it's rather like, you know, when you're, if you're, you're drowning, you feel you're drowning, you hang on to any old log, you don't, <laughs> you don't want to let go of it. <laughs> so uh, the unawakened mind doesn't realize that if you let go, you, you float. You know? And you can't just convince it intellectually. You, know, you can't just say, like you say to a drowning, somebody who doesn't know, doesn't know that. You know? They've got to really do it a little bit at a time. Just a little bit of letting go. So they say, oh yeah, oh yeah. 
right, you know. So it has to be definitely encouraged. So again, calm is needed. Action is needed to actually keep putting it in a place with the encouragement of, yeah, you, look, you can let go of that. That, that sense of applying this skillful encouragement, the skillful intention to the mind. This is, a, this is the karma that ends karma. And means we, and, but to do that, you know, what this implies is a lot of us feels like we're drowning. Some of us feels like we're lost. Because what it, what it's, what it does is it starts to peel away a lot of the, the energy forms that we call ourselves. The forms of clinging, the forms of habit, the forms of identity, the forms of I was this, I will be that, this is who I am. And that's rather unnerving and difficult to do. So this is what we call the bhavasava. There's ignorance or the not really seeing, not really knowing the unconditioned, not really knowing there's a float we can be in, if you like. And then, because of that, there's this need to be something. This need to hold on to being someone. And it's not an intellectual exercise, it's a, it's a gut-level grip, you know, that um, gives us some sense of security, even though as we, as we be something and become something, it doesn't quite work. You know, whenever you, whether you become, you know... Um, rock star or you become a millionaire or you become a gardener whatever it is you become it doesn't quite doesn't quite fit you know some bit of you never quite feel satisfied in that if you're a success you're not quite you want a bit more success until eventually you go down and you lose it if you're if you're going down you want to go up if you want to go up you want to keep going up and you know so becoming doesn't really work doesn't take us to a place of stasis and fulfilment and yet it kind of it kind of seems like it could if you could just get the right one <laughs> you know if you just could become the right thing you'd be alright so a lot of our lives is spent trying to become the right thing and we'd be alright so we try this we try that we try relationships, we try jobs we try ideologies, we try meditation, we try monastic life. And this doesn't quite fit either. <laughs> you know, still bits I don't feel really, really weird. And it's not quite the kind of serene, tranquil, beatific, uh, experience, mystical experience that I thought it would be. A lot of it's just kind of dull and grumpy and boring. <laughs> It's not all rapture and ease and joy and delight, you know, like it should be. So these little dreams we have of becoming the right thing just keep pop, popping. You mm. think, well, I guess there's something wrong with me. You still believe in the dream, but you think the problem is you. <laughs> that there is that, but you haven't got it yet. You haven't got what it takes to be it. Yeah. and I want to tell you the truth as I know it and you check it out for yourself there isn't one 
the Buddha said that too. He says, value, actually becoming, he says, I wouldn't value it at all, becoming anything. So there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> Apart from you don't know there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> something still wants to instinctively find that place be, and say well yeah there is a place where the, where the so he says well rather than do that just rather than look at what you could become what you might become what you should become by now surely after all these you should have by now become this just instead focus on that sense of dis-ease Stress, dissatisfaction, not enough yet. When's it ever going to be right? Why can't I make? Just focus on that little grumble in the mind. There's, then this is where the Buddha talked about the Four Noble Truths. Mm. So that, that's where you hit it. Don't bother about who you are, what you need to be. Just focus on that very relationship of this isn't quite right yet. Why don't I ever? When am I going to? Why doesn't life work? Just focus on that little plaintive whimper. (laughs) It sometimes escalates into a roar of frustration. So that's that's, that's it. Now work on that. This is the most skillful place to direct your inclinations, your, your, your volition. Work on... So getting the frame of reference can keep holding you there. And you don't want to be there. Nobody wants to be there. But I'll tell you. You see, I'll tell you. Nobody wants to be there. But I'll tell you, if somebody says to you, look, let's do a deal. In the morning, people have come along, they'll stab you a hundred times with spears. In the afternoon, they'll stab you a hundred times with spears. In the evening, they'll stab you a hundred times with spears. They'll do this every day. This will go on for a hundred years. And after the hundredth year has gone up by, you would have understood these four noble truths. If somebody gives you that deal, shake their hand and say, done. Because <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> you don't want to be there. You really don't want to be there. Now, the Buddha, obviously, you know, a great orator, is making a very strong point, even though you really don't want to be there. I tell you, look, it's worth it. And actually, most of us are not getting stabbed with a hundred spears. We just get stabbed with one little spear a day, maybe. You know? <laughs> so look, okay, I know it's not so nice, but stay with it. It's worth it, I'll tell you. That's the bit. Apply yourself to that piece. And in the path. And so actually there's a way you do that. You hold your attention there by skillfully attending to your thoughts, your speech, your inclinations, your physical actions, and then very most important and above all attending to your mind this is what we call kamatana making a foundation out of karma you know use that sense of inclining checking cultivating abandoning protecting use that sense fully onto your mind yeah onto what it's doing. And then you're through this, this is called right effort. This is where you know the, the the path, you know, you can turn it around. 
you can turn your direction around and you can stop the current you can switch off that gravitational pull it's called the karma that leads to the end of karma Mm. and um, the sutra called the dog dog duty ascetic and it's, it's rather funny this sutra. so in the Majjhima Nikaya you look it up uh, the Buddha uh, talks of the different kinds of karma story is of course that there's this ascetic who thinks he can get clear out all his past karma by being by acting like a dog ascetic he has a friend who acts like an ox and they feel that by somehow you know, getting rid of all their human attachments to comfort and pleasure, they'll clear out all their karma. You know, so one just lies around in puddles and scratches himself and drinks, stands, eats on all fours and things like that. So they, they do this feeling this way. They get rid of all their worldly attachments as human beings. So the uh, so the dog duty ascetic asks them. He says, "Well, tell me, you know, how do you see? What do you think?" Oh, my results of my practice will be after all these years of doing that the Buddha says don't ask so I ask him again he says, no no says, don't ask you don't, you don't want to know and so he asked him a third time he says alright when you ask a Buddha three times I've got to tell you he says well if you've acted like a dog all your life The best thing that happens is you'd be reborn as a dog. <laughs> the worst thing that can happen is you go to hell <laughs> if you've had a kind of violent or abusive inclination in that. Because you don't get rid of it by becoming something else. You have to, you know, obviously, dog, ox is a very, is a almost comical. Most of us want to be not a dog or an ox, we want to be a something else. You know, this is, no, you don't do it that way. You have to be who you are. You, know? you have to be you, who you are, right where you are. Mm-hmm. Don't take on another performance. Don't take on another act. Be where you are. Investigate your mind, your stuff. Uh, there's an encouragement there. And uh, however it is, this is we might say this is the. Karma is action. It's also applied to, rather inaccurately really, but to the, the storing up of action, called vipaka. Which means that because of actions, when the actions are repeated, if you, don't, you create a current, you create an inclination, you create a groove, you create a habit. So because you act in this way repeatedly, that's your tendency. That's your tendency. So that creation of a tendency is called generating a, a formation or generating a sankara. Sankaras are the are the patterns and programs that get generated through either continual acting in a certain way, or through acting in a certain way very very strongly, like a massive act of deep intention, like killing someone or or generosity, you know, positive, negative, or positive. So you you know. These, these create big, big ripples, big currents, big riptides in the mind. Mm-hmm. So, and the why, why 
we are going on this way is because these these big riptides, these currents that we've generated, then continue. This is the process of vipaka. That's having acted as a result. A pattern is laid down. You get carried along in that particular direction. There's an immediate result and there's a long-term result. Yeah. And you know, when we when we meditate, often what's coming up is the vipaka the old results, the old habits, the old tendencies. Study them. Learn. You know. Learn that they're, they're, they're programs. They're not actually yourself. They're currents running across the surface. The worry current. The anxiety current. The I should be something else current. The greed current. The hungry current. The despairing current. You know. And those are the currents you want to say, no, no more of that. No more of that. Mm-hmm. They always justify themselves. They always seem real and solid. That's how they work. You want to see come out of that with Parker. The teaching is that having done something, having acted in a certain way, you're bound to have a result. There's going to be a, there's going to be a, a result. If you've acted... In, thought, inclined in a certain way for a long time, you've set up a particular current. You have to you have to sense that. You have to be with that. But you don't but but having that result doesn't mean you've got to continue doing it in that way. So there's a break. You, know, you can't between cause and effect, between karma and vipaka there is no break. But between vipaka and fresh karma there is a break. So once we start to acknowledge the inclination towards doubt or despair or trying to know it all or feeling inferior, whatever it is, some of these currents are maybe not like deep rage or hatred or lust, but they are still currents. You know, I imagine most of us are not into the really heavy stuff anymore. We've cleared that, but perhaps we're into these residual niggly things that keep feeling so much like me and that the teaching is that if you acknowledge that in your own mind and see for what it is you've got a chance to see, you know to just st- step out of that you can do this in meditation just check that stop that just stop breathe out let go relax it you know and brighten up, bring up your good side, bring up your patience, bring up your loving kindness. So, you know, it's both extraordinarily simple and it's also not always so easy because of the conviction, because of the gravitational pull of these things. It's not always so easy. Yeah. It's very simple and it's tantalizingly simple because you're like, yeah, that's how you could do it. If I could just stop doing that, I'd be all right. <laughs> Yeah, that's it, got it. And then do it again. <laughs> you know? And uh, mindfulness is, of course, of great importance. You've got to bear something in mind, to stay steady with something. And yet, you need also to cultivate the whole ground so that you, there's some strength there, there's some resources there. You know? And this is what you're doing in your daily life. You keep cultivating the ground of generosity, cultivating the ground of moral conscience. Like, I know what I'm doing, I know when I'm starting to 
get grabby or demanding or pushy or wheedling or manipulative and just stop doing that you know? <laughs> <laughs> I know what I'm doing I should know what I'm doing you develop that you develop renunciation like what do I really need and fancy some of that but I think this is enough actually you know, simplify you cultivate what are called parami um, the, the Theravada tradition has kind of picked up these themes and built up a little category of ten paramis. Nice, nice number. Uh, nice to group them. They're not, not actually categorized that way in the canon, but certainly there are all kinds of examples of um, generosity, virtue, renunciation discernment is kind of clear seeing what's skillful what's unskilled discernment or wisdom um, energy persistence just bearing with keeping going staying with it patience kanti uh, honesty loving kindness resolution and equanimity these are the ten paramita and you, again you can probably easily refer to those in, in a list So, and I imagine they're themes that you're not unfamiliar with mm-hmm. this is, these of course are just ways of, of, of looking at the karmic current and just kind of pulling ten, ten strands out of that saying, you know this is a good number you, you know what they mean and you know they're all pretty powerful in their own way and you know that if you if you just determine your life like that rather than well what am I doing today I'm going to do this, do that, do this, do that it's true on one level you know, milk the dog and water the baby and mow the cow and things that you do no, what I'm doing I'm doing practicing patience oh yeah and now I can milk the cow I'm practicing discernment rather than milk the dog <laughs> you know, and I'll mow the lawn. Mow the lawn. I'll practice patience. I call it mowing the lawn, but actually I'll be practicing patience. Because you, know? <laughs> you know, I don't. Uh, you know, it gets boring or tedious. You've got to persevere with it. Or, you know, so you get ways of kind of structuring your activity in terms of of um, you know undercurrents. So with whatever you're doing, you know, whether you're knocking nails in or running the computer, there's a, there's a meaningful undercurrent. It's not just another day of yada yada. It's there's a meaningful undercurrent. And you keep that in mind. Then it helps to guide what you're doing. Hey, look, oh, now I'm getting a bit frantic in what I'm doing. It's, wait a minute. Patience. Now I'm getting a bit caught up. Equanimity. Just gain, loss, success, failure. Okay, I, you know I can be with that. Those 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 swings of it, because they're all inevitable, really. <laughs> sooner or later you fail. Sooner or later you drop the teacup. Sooner or later you, you, the milk boils over. So, you know, I can be with that. Patience, really important. And there may be particular ones that, in your mind or your life, or that are very meaningful the ones that you might have neglected or not really given due, due um, 
due attention to it? I don't know. For me, certainly, patience has always been a very meaningful and quite painful experience. <laughs> In some ways, you know, because it's the it's not the patience, but the impatience is painful. That fretful, when's this going to happen? One thing is to happen soon, quickly. And then as soon as I acknowledge that, it's this kind of burning feeling. And it's, then it's just almost as that pull, that push of impatience, fretfulness, when I really see that. And I don't want to be with that. I really want to do something to, to make it go away, you know. No, stay. Stay with that. Stay with those hundred spears. Mm. Stay, you'll learn something. <laughs> Stay. <laughs> you'll learn something. The Buddha says you'll learn something. But if I did a, just... But it's not right. Yes, yes, yes. Just stay. Stay. Oh, yeah. And then the mind finally mm. uh, groans and creaks. And, oh! opens because <laughs> it's rusted it's almost like the mind's a rusted claw and it, sometimes you've got to put WD-40 and get a wrench on it and it's, come on, you can open I don't want to open, you can open stay with it, it's so painful that eventually if you, you know, your mind opens up because that's the only way through and, is that kind of, and with that, a little bit of me gives up. A little bit of my time, my want, my wish, my limits gives up. A little bit of my way and how things are going to work for me has to give up. You know? And from when it's holding and it doesn't want, it doesn't want to do that, it doesn't feel it's right or proper. And when it, when, it, when it lets go, it thinks, oh, thank goodness for that. Why didn't you do this sooner? <laughs> and it's like the Buddha said, you know, it's worth it. So then, you know, that's, what, that's our edge, really, that in daily life is just karma. And as the Buddha said to the, the ascetic, the donkey of the ascetic, you've got the four kinds, it's dark, directly negative, Really see that. There's bright, good karma. Really see that. There's mixed. There's doing good things with a slightly suspect attitude or doing something bad on the way to doing something good, like, you know, you know kicking the dog in, in order to go and do something, give food to the monks. <laughs> so it's mixed. Get out of the way, dog food in the month so it's a bit mixed and then there's a karma that leads to the end of karma and the interesting thing in this particular discourse is that he says you know when there's dark karma a being gives rise to a being because of a being there is a being one becomes something else when there's good karma because of being good there is a being something else this is good karma. Mixed karma, because of being this, there's a being something else. At the end of karma, he says, there's no being. Mm. You know, so it always feels like there's no, that moment when you really end karma, 
you're not there. It's like your self-view just sort of disappears for that. That's what, that's what endings are like. It doesn't feel like you've become something or you've got somewhere or you've made something happen. You know, so, you know, there isn't a being there. It's just as an action without a being. Uh, and that's the I think when you really, in, the, in your own meditations, your own cultivations, when you really sense the deep letting go, when you sense that, is it like that? You know, there you were struggling and wondering, and then something finally gave up. And, and for that moment, your identity, your personality just had to step back, stop. And then there was a kind of a, you know, you, you, something came through and you dropped. There's a calmer, little bit of calmer ending, you know. And all the time you're just kind of starting to review that experience and get faith in it, get trust in it, that, that there is a release. And release involves tackling some of these sticky, intense places. The release often involves really having to face a lot of strong feeling this is what I am and need and can't and mustn't and haven't got and all that kind of stuff means really facing that and release often means finally giving ourselves up something giving ourselves up and then there's an ending to karma